I have a lot I want to cover and not a lot of time, and I am committed to not going down any rabbit trails, but the, the title of this message is Bread from Heaven. That's my title. And where I want to end up is we're going to do communion. So that's at the end. <laughs> and so it's going to lead up into, it's just, I don't know if I've ever preached on communion before, but I'm doing today. And the way I'm going to do it is, it's not a topical preach. It's what you're going to talk about is the, the phrase ought to be more expositional kind of thing. We are going to go through, if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 6. We are largely going to just be there. It is a long chapter, which is why I'm, I, <laughs> during worship, I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But John chapter 6, there, there was a, a short season in my life. I just kept reading John chapter 6. I just felt there was something in it for me. And I just kept reading it like I'd wake up, I'd read it. Next day, I'd wake up, I'd read it, I'd read it, I'd read it. And I'm still reading it. And I'm still learning, which tells you maybe I'm slow, or there's just a lot in there, or both. But, so just to give you an overall understanding of John chapter 6, which is obviously in the gospel, and you've read it before, you know most of the stories by heart, but just as a very quick intro and tell you how we're going to read it, because there's so much in there, sometimes it's helpful for you to, for me to explain the particular lens I want you to put on so that we can read it together. But John chapter 6 covers a span of two days of time. Two days. And it begins where we're going to start with the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody knows that. You learned it in children's church or Sunday school if you did go to church as a kid. And then it ended at the end of two days with the disciples being offended and turning away. That's quite a two days. Feeding the 5,000 and the acclaim and the notoriety that came with that, and then two days later, people were like, yeah, I'm, I'm done, I'm out. All happened in the span of two days. So the particular lens that I want you to use and the way we're going to talk about this is that the difference between the flesh slash the world, that type of thinking, versus spiritual slash heavenly thinking. So... Here, I already kind of misled you. Yes, we are going to be in, stay in John chapter 6, but very quickly, it's going to come up behind you, I think, from Romans 5, verse 5 through 7. I'm going to read this to you. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things in the f of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And I have underlined the flesh and carnality, and it's all the same word. And that word is sarks. And it's defined as the flesh denotes mere human nature, the earthly nature of man apart from divine influence, and therefore prone to sin and opposed to God. That's the flesh slash the, the world. So, as I said, flesh slash the world versus spiritual slash heavenly. This is really what we're going to dive into in the entire course of looking at John chapter 6, and it's a long chapter. The way I've broken it out, I'm just kind of telling you what I'm doing in trying to 
go through John chapter 6, think of it as a play. There is a climax to the play, but the play has many acts. And I've tried to break it up into different acts, different segments, right along these lines. So, having said that, let's begin. So, we're going to start in just in verse 2. And I'm just going to read, and then I'm going to interject here and there. But the first act is the limits of the flesh. It says in verse 2, Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted, lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. More than 5,000 people, by the way, 5,000 men. And we have a problem. It's an interesting practical ministry question, right? And a lot of you aspire to ministry, do ministry, just are ministry. And the question often comes, how do you meet the needs of people standing right before you? And I'm not going to go too far down because this is a rabbit trail. But can I just say to you that you don't really have to aspire ministry. Needs will find their way to your doorstep. You don't have to go looking for them. They will. That's part of the character of God in, in a sense, you being his tool that can help people in need. Needs will find their way in the doorsteps. But the practical question does come. How do you meet the need? Right? 5,000 men plus others, and Jesus asked the question, where are we going to get all this food? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Now, the denarius, in a sense, is roughly equated, one denarius is roughly equated to a day's wage. So 200 denarius, you're getting to something that is close or akin to almost a year's worth of work. That's a lot of work, so that each person that happened to be in this mass of people could have a little. And the number 200, interestingly enough, is the number of insufficiency. That's another rabbit trail. But 200 denarius, as Philip said, could just get you enough so that everybody could have a little, a maybe a mere bite. I don't know what he meant by a little. And this just points to the insufficiency of the work of man in the flesh. That's just what it represents. Because they had a real problem. There is no earthly strategy. There's no earthly amount of work that's going to solve this problem. And yet it's a real problem. And it's on their doorstep. And that now becomes the question. So into this equation, of course, as we read on, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And of course, the number five is the number of grace. So in this first act, what you have is clearly they have a real problem, real needs. Almost a year's worth of work by a single person can only do like a fractional amount of help. So what do you do? And grace now enters into the equation with five Lows. That's where we begin. I mean, you know the story. I'm just using a lens so that we can appreciate where we are. So, continue on the next act. 
Jesus now demonstrates life in the spirit goes beyond the reach of the flesh. It's really basic, but this, these segments or this really this entire discourse is building up to where we want to get to. So I have to take the time to explain. So in verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Sitting down is not something that some people like to do. Some of you are wired to do the stuff. Some of you don't want to sit down because when you sit down, what you're implicitly recognizing and acting out is that your work is done. That's what happens when you sit down. So he asked the very beginning of this entire miracle starts with make the people sit i'm sure some of them didn't want to say why are we sitting i don't want to sit with this person but that's how we begin the work of the flesh has to end and in a sense that's just a picture of what jesus was beginning to actually reveal the things of the spirit now very practically and I think you can recognize this in your life because you, this battle between the flesh and the worldly type of thinking versus spiritual heavenly thinking, you are going into this conflict every day. And some of you are what I would call you have strong souls, which means that your willpower is so strong that, for lack of a better way to say it, there's not a problem that you're afraid of. Because you kind of think to yourself, I can do it. I've got skills. I've got history. I've got perspective. I've got wisdom. Oh, we're going to get this done. And by the way, I've got a plan. It's just a natural thing. That's great for you to have acquired in the more secular parts of your life. And that does creep over into other aspects that, in a sense, represents a control item. But there are certain problems... And there's a style, in a sense, a way of thinking that Jesus is trying to introduce that, you know, sit down. You have to sit down. Your work has to now end so that the things of the Spirit, the heavenly opportunities can now be ushered in. And it does require for the flesh to be sat down. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to disciples and disciples to those sitting down. I read that just like the other day. I'm like, so if you weren't sitting down, did you not get anything? I mean, it's an interesting kind of theoretical question that I popped up in my head. My head. He asked him, make them sit down. Well, did everybody sit down? He gave it to those that were sitting down. So my natural thinking is, so were there people not sitting down? If they weren't sitting down, did they not get anything? Again, rabbit trail. But I found it fascinating. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. In this passage, as I said, we're in this act that he's demonstrating life in the spirit beyond the reach of the flesh says, when he had given thanks. 
Now, in other accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, in Mark chapter 6, verse 41, he says he looked up to heaven. And that seems so blasé in terms of, if I were to say, you know, well, maybe you ought to look to heaven. Well, okay, tell me something that's really helpful. Typically, which is why I made an emphasis on the point of sitting down, typically you won't look up until you've stopped what you're doing. Until you actually sit down and actually have rest from your work, only then will you now look up. It's just a principle I know. I've exhibited this principle, by the way. So Jesus, after having the people sit down, resting from their work, Jesus now looks to heaven and gives thanks. And what is literally happening here. Once you've rested from your work, your earthly ability, earthly capability, earthly plans, and now look and peer into the heavenlies, guess what? What you're now doing is you're going beyond the natural into the supernatural. And supernatural, just think of it as going beyond the natural. If you look up in Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which I love doing, by the way, because I love words, it's just going beyond the visible to transcend the laws of nature, which means to actually entertain, to look up into heaven and entertain the supernatural. What you're immediately ushering in as an opportunity that you now are having your eyes see opportunities that defy the box of the natural. That's all it means. That's all it means. And that's what Jesus did to do this miracle. This is the second act. Jesus demonstrating life in the spirit beyond the reach of the flesh. And he made provision as much as they wanted and more. Because they picked up 12 basketfuls that were left over. Next act. The flesh desires to subvert the desires of the spirit to accomplish carnal ambitions. They had a real need. Limits of the flesh. How do you feed all these people? Jesus has them sit down, now looks into heaven to access the supernatural, something beyond the mere natural, ushers in provision supernaturally. And does this sound familiar now? Now, having seen what is now available in the supernatural, now there's, there is a tendency or a desire, because it's come out of the flesh, to now control it. And this is literally what happens in verse 14. It says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So they acknowledge the heavenly origin of what they just experienced and saw. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. I love that verse. I've actually patterned some of my life, some of my advice right along those lines. But what you see literally is that he, he just performed a supernatural miracle. The people acknowledged where it came from, which is it, he, this is a prophet from heaven. And now, the flesh, their worldly perspective begins to twist and say, ah, now we have to use this as a tool for our own ambition, and they wanted to make him king by force. Jesus probably laughed at this actual thought, 
because you know the Bible, he was already offered by Satan all the kingdoms of the world. Then he turned it down. He was offered everything. And now these people who saw a miracle but recognized the heavenly origin now wants to twist it for their own objectives, for their own benefit, are saying, let's make him king by force. And what does Jesus do? He withdraws. Which I will just say this as a very practical piece of advice for all of you, because you will all experience exactly this scenario. Maybe even somebody wants to make you king. But the principle here is that and I've patterned my life in terms of advice and how I try to perceive situations of manipulation. Whenever you find yourself in a situation that somebody is trying to take your freedom to choose, withdraw. Withdraw. By the mere idea that they're taking choices out of your hand is a sign that you are in the presence of manipulation. It is not your well-being, but somebody else's ambitions and the tool of which is to steal your freedom. That's what's happening. The flesh is desiring to control and twist what is acknowledged in open display is entirely supernatural to use it as a tool for their own ambitions. So this is life advice for you. I'm not going to delve too far deep in that, but if you find yourself in that situation that you don't really get to choose, get out. Well, I'd love to talk to you about parenting with that idea. But we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to move on because I've got a lot to cover. The flesh desires to twist, to control, and subvert heavenly directives for fleshly, worldly ones. So the next act becomes Jesus demonstrates again the spirit unconstrained by the flesh. It is a wonderful subject that I appreciate in understanding how to do this Christian life. And you hear concepts about the soul and the spirit, and it might seem kind of complicated, the soul being your mind, your will, and your emotions, and then the spirit part of you that is supposed to have dominion over your soul. Not the soul having, putting in a sense of spirit in subjection, and an easy example is, oh, your emotions. Are your emotions dictating your very perspective, how you feel, what you think is possible? Yeah, that's like out of order. Emotions are real. And there's an aspect of just the normal Christian life that, you know what? Yeah, emotions are, we all have touched and feel, been touched by fear, anxiety, yes. But the spirit puts that in submission. And there's a process by that. But the spirit is above the soul, not the other way around. So Jesus demonstrates this. After the flesh was trying to take control by force, by making him king, he now goes in this next act and actually demonstrates a vast superiority of the spirit over the things of the flesh. Verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, and I didn't finish the sentence, 
In Mark chapter 6, verse 48, he said, Then he saw them straining at rowing. They were out about halfway, and they're rowing, and the wind was against it, and they're just straining. Representing, to me, just the literal battle of the flesh. We all know this battle. There are situations that you, there are problems and situations in your life that you didn't choose, but they're on your doorstep. And there's a choice we all make. Of course, actually responding and dealing with them is the practical and prudent thing to do. And now the question is, well, how are you going to do this? And they did everything to you because some of them were fishermen, right? And they're rowing and they're straining and they're not getting anywhere. And then Jesus, what did they see? They saw Jesus walking on the sea. I love this passage. I, I did preach on it, which I'm not going to go into detail about it. He's walking on the sea, and what that represents to me is this spirit part of Jesus, entirely unconstrained by the world system. What, is, what does this world system include? Gravity. Gravity. It's a law. I mean, I, I studied physics in college, and, you know, it's a constant. 9.8 meters per second. It's a constant. Second squared, sorry. Acceleration versus velocity, sorry. He's walking on the water. Unaffected by the world system, i.e. gravity. In, and I love the Bible sometimes because it just, you have these thoughts and, and the Bible just says it like, oh yeah, pretty much. It's as simple as that. In Mark, Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, in, the, in that same account of Jesus walking while the disciples said, it's a ghost. What is a ghost? No physical, corporal element, entirely ethereal in the spirit. That's what they thought. And they were right. Because at the moment that Jesus is walking on the water, it's as if the spirit side of him had so dominant, so unhindered by the flesh that he's defying everything of the world system, untouched by it. Walking on the water. And then, they were afraid. <laughs> I wish I could talk about this. <sighs> they were afraid. The things of heaven sometimes, because the origin is not from here, and you are unable to control it, the natural response to that of what you don't understand and don't know is to shut it down out of fear. So they're just being real. They were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Immediately, Jesus, unconstrained by the flesh, walking on the water, defying everything of the world system, just gets in the boat and we're there. We're there. Some of you are like, well, did that really happen? Like, Look, you just accepted the idea that he's walking on the water. <laughs> so I think you should give yourself a free pass to believe that once he got into the boat, they immediately got to where they were going. Right? Yeah. Because you're in, you're in this, not halfway. You're all in now. Is there any better picture of what happens 
in your life, in problems and situations that you encounter, that out of all your fleshly effort and plans and willpower, you're pushing and pushing and pushing and nothing's moving. And then God just says, are you ready for me to step into your boat? And you're like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. And he gets in the boat. He's like, oh, we're here. We're here. What did I do to... What did I do? No, you did nothing. Jesus demonstrating, again, the spirit unconstrained by the flesh. They're there. This is day one. I did this, and let's recap day one. This all happened in day one, right? By Acts. Act one, the flesh is limited. Real need. 5,000 men plus other people, you've got to feed them. Practical need. Just practical. Jesus demonstrated life in the spirit beyond the reach of the flesh. He fed them supernaturally by grace after they sat down. Act three. The flesh, seeing this heavenly, amazing thing, desires to now twist it for their own objectives to control it. The flesh desires to constrain the spirit. And Jesus, in response, withdrew, then demonstrated again the spirit unconstrained by the flesh. This is day one, four acts. And the takeaway at this point, because you're wondering, well, I thought we were going to talk about communion. Oh, yes, we are. But this, in a sense, we're doing pretty well on time, I'm happy. These four acts, what it demonstrates is really these two realms, flesh slash the world, spiritual, heavenly. And now, like, these, the distinction between these two realms is going to get so stark on day two. But you're already prepared for this. So, let's continue on in verse 26. And it says, they realize, like, well, where did he go? We didn't see him get in the boat. I, I'm, I, I can't go through all of it, right? And so they catch up to him because he walked on the water, got in the boat, all of a sudden they're there, and the next day people are, like, trying to find him. Okay, verse 26. So Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in whom he sent. This is when the entire disconnect is going to just go off the rails now. So what is now beginning to happen in this discourse, there's one, the people are stuck in this fleshly, worldly realm, and Jesus is trying to introduce this amazing provision in the spirit from heaven of life. And they think it revolves around food because they, they're there because he fed them. See, the real problem that Jesus is wanting to address is sin. Sin. And I'm going to go faster here. And the ultimate need of man is salvation. 
And this is the entire centrality of this discourse, which is exposing the rift between these two realms. And he says, do not labor. Because they're thinking, well, what do we need to do to work? What work do we need to do? And he says, belief. Belief. Your work, what you are being asked to do, what are you being asked to, in a sense, pattern your entire thinking and action is belief. That's your work. There were, in some revivals in the past, and they would have amazing worship, of course, and some of the worship, they would sing this refrain, refrain only believe. Only believe. Only believe. That's your work. Which is not really work. Oh, to believe means that everything of your flesh that says, oh, this is what I need to do. This is what I've got to execute on this plan. I need to get advice because this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to execute it because, well, I can. All of that has, now has to be laid low. It says, belief. Belief. To sit down and believe is way harder than you think because you have to give up a part of you. I'm skipping now to verse 47, and it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which come down, comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. There's no way in the flesh that was understandable to them. They were asking, which was in part of the verses that I didn't read, they were referring back to Moses and the provision that Moses gave, the manna that they had to collect six days a week. And they were referring, well, Moses gave this bread. It's like, oh, Jesus said, no, that's not the bread from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. See, the bread that Moses gave was for the needs of the flesh. They had to physically be sustained because they didn't have food. And what Jesus has flipped in terms of paradigm is that, oh, I am this bread now, but the need that I'm fulfilling is your spiritual need, which is of salvation. And they're like, ah. Jesus is the true bread of life from heaven to give life to the world, which is foreshadowing his substitutionary and sacrificial death for them. And to believe on him is to eat of the bread. That's what he's saying. It's no surprise, of course, that they didn't comprehend what he was saying. So we're going to keep moving on. Because you can't understand the spiritual with a worldly lens. I'm not telling you anything new. Let's see what it says. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Wow. Your unregenerated mind will probably think of this passage exactly what they thought when he said this. And I read this passage, and I, I read this passage for a good long time, and just trying to understand what it was all about. And it's certainly foreshadowing communion, by the way, which is how I got stuck in this. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you do this, you abide in me and I in you. Oh, I like the sound of that. And the response by the crowd, the disciples, was predictable entirely because without, with a worldly lens, you would entirely misconstrue what Jesus was saying, which is, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to solve your ultimate need in the spirit, which is sin. You need a savior. So in verse 60, it says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Off the rails at this point. He went from being the toast of the town, let's make him king, to, Yeah, I'm out. I am out. And Jesus, being entirely secure, of course, says, does this offend you? Does this bother you? Does this mess up your thinking and maybe I'm not quite the picture that you had in mind? I'm not so palatable, am I? Eat my fresh, drink my blood. <laughs> and many of them left. Many of them deserted him, followed him no more, as it says. Because the worldly lens cannot comprehend the spiritual. Please accept that as a principle. The words that Jesus spoke in what he was intending to do by the will of the Father to solve the ultimate need of man was right there. And none of them could comprehend it because they had a worldly lens. All right, let's land this thing. All of that... All of that was said we could talk about the last part, which is where I wanted to go. Now let's talk with some level of clarity and honesty, I hope, about life in the spirit. Life in the spirit. Because while it could be a tagline, I think you at some level think, yeah, I want that. That sounds really good. Life in peace in the spirit. In verse 62 what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? This is Jesus' response. After this hubbub of confusion, not understanding the new paradigm that Jesus was ushering in and people being offended because it it's not, not working for me. And he begins to say, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? 
It is not as simple as just looking into heaven. Please understand what he's saying here. Read the exact words. He's not just saying look into heaven. It's like, no. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? As in, I was there. I have now come down. And I'm going to ascend again. He was saying, what then if you should see the resurrected me in heaven where I came from? That's what he was saying. Not just look into heaven for heavenly things. No, see me. I was there. I came. I gave my life. I'm going to die, be buried, and resurrected, and I'm going to be lifted up into heaven. See me. That's what he says. Of course, they didn't even understand what he was going to do, but that's what he said. And there's a very big difference. I hope you can accept this as some truth to it by experience. There's a very big difference looking abstractly to, into heaven versus looking into heaven and seeing him, the resurrected Savior, that you put all of your faith in because you're saved, which means you believe. You believe. And that's all he ever asked for you to do. What works should we do? Believe. And you have. And the cornerstone of your belief is there. Look there. Because he's there. And he's coming back. It continues on. And I'm just going to be try and recollect my thinking. But in verse 63, it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. These words rocked me a little while ago because you know this verse. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And I kind of always sort of understood the principle that, yeah, oh, I can change the atmosphere in the room by my words. If the words are imbued with the power and the unction of the spirit, oh, can I change the atmosphere in the room? I believe I can. Because I'm speaking what the spirit is wanting to say, which is going to change the very expectation that's in the room. And I just believe that as a principle. And there is a general principle. But that's not what this verse is saying. You say, well, no, you just quoted the verse. That's what is what it's saying. What rocked my world is this. There is a context to this very verse. This is like the highlight, the climax of this entire discourse over two days. And Jesus just delivers this verse. He's like, well, okay, I'm not fully gained. Well, let me, this might help you. In the ESV, so it says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So both in the ESV and the Amplified, this is what it says instead. The words that I have spoken. Not the words that I'm speaking now. The words that I have spoken which is the entirety of the discourse in John chapter 6 where he's talking about and foreshadowing communion. 
and I sat there one morning, and I'm like, is that saying what I think it's saying? Because every, in my under, previous understanding, like, I understand the general principle, but now he's basically saying, with respect to what I just said, the words that I have spoken are spirit and they are life. I'm like, oh my. What am I saying? The mere act of communion, sorry, wrong word, not the mere. The act of communion that he foreshadowed, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Shock value, to be sure, because there's a worldly lens applied to what was entirely spiritual, and was foreshadowing the communion, which he said later on, do this in remembrance of me. And now he's saying, these words that I described doing that, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you abide in me and I in you. And now he says, the words that I have spoken, which is those words, spirit and life. And I said to myself, oh, communion every day sounds like a pretty good idea. And that started me on a journey of just recognizing, just in a sense, what, what the revelation has like, well, that's what you said. That the mere act, sorry, not mere, the act of taking communion, there's an element of spirit and life in it because he said so. He said so. And yes, there is the whole reason why we went through flesh us the world, heavenly versus and spiritual. This two paradigms. The act of taking communion positions yourself to be squarely in one camp and not the other. That's why it's spiritual. It is not a fleshly ritual. That might be your experience. And I'm sure to some degree it was even mine. Ritualistic. Form over function. And yet Jesus encouraged to do this in remembrance of me. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, foreshadowing communion. And I said, the words that I have just spoken to you they are spirit and they are life. Hmm. So, we're going to do communion. We're going to do communion. I, don't, I do communion largely every day, and if you could take this, I trust you all have one, and if you don't, we will get you one. I am hopeful that what I can accomplish today is not to give you a pattern or a ritual, but a perspective for you to do this on your own, in your home, not as a ritual, but it's something that as an act puts you squarely in the camp of the spiritual which I will tell you will color every perspective you have about every single problem you face. It will 
in association with that, ensure that you rest from your work. Because there is nothing of this, what you hold in your hand in terms of what it represents as a memorial, there's nothing of this that you can lay claim to other than to say, I believe. That's your work. I believe. So we're going to do this. Oh, it's on the bottom. Oh, my goodness. It's not a fail. There's a five-second, 20-second rule somewhere. I have kids. I've eaten food that my kids have spilled, believe me. Okay, sorry. Couldn't help myself. I felt like Josh there. Because <laughs> he eats food from the floor, too. No. Sorry. Okay, stop. stop. All right. As I was preparing and thinking about communion, and I've had communion a lot, and I never necessarily approached it the same way. Bill John said something really interesting. He said, because this is by one of the greatest inventions ever. I mean, a cup and a, a cracker, like travel size. I mean, <laughs> amazing, just genius. But Bill Johnson said this. He said, he would have it, and sometimes he would just sit, and he wouldn't actually partake of it until it meant something. I was like, that's pretty awesome. Well, that's why he's Bill Johnson. So I've approached it in many different ways, but I want it to have meaning. And this is the, this is the, the lens that I want you to have today, because this seems sort of ritualistic, to be sure. But if you think about this, the bread, think about it as an action that he did, the price that he paid. We like to fast forward and think through, oh, there's benefits? Yes, there are. But this represents what he went through, what he paid for, what, in a sense, he did on your behalf entirely substitutionarily for you on the cross, beaten, whipped, pierced for you so that you need not. That's this. This, now that this is done, this is entirely your benefit. This, the blood, and I did preach on this a little while ago, this blood is the lens by which he now views you. Under the blood, you are holy, blameless, without approach. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. This is the lens by which God views you. Under the blood. There is no work to be done. He did all the work. You get all the benefit. That's what we celebrate. So let's do that. Lord Jesus, we hold up here. What you have done, this is for us to remember the price that you paid willingly. You laid down your life, endured pain and suffering on our behalf. It is your victory that you have won on the cross for us, and we celebrate your death and proclaim it.
and you have won for us for all time, for all time, our peace. That your blood has made peace with God so that we can stand before you unashamed, holy, blameless, without reproach. That is how you see us, entirely redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Communion. Spirit and life to you, I encourage you to appropriate this for your own individual self and for your families. This is to put you squarely into the spiritual heavenly realm. It is not ritual. Amen. Let's sing a song. We have time. We, as it just do, just you, all right. As they get set up, I do want to pray for us very quickly as he gets set up. But I wanted to, I thought it just fantastic to celebrate because what, what I so enjoyed about the worship today, I mean, he actually asked me, do I have any song that I want you to, that you're interested in? I was like, no, not really. And pretty much he put all the songs that if I actually had to choose, he did. And it was all about the work of Christ. It's all to recalibrate our thinking into what he has done as a fact on our behalf, what we, how we have benefited from. So Lord Jesus, we honor you. We honor you for who you are, what you have done, what you have won, and the victory and the peace that we can live in. So we thank you, Lord. We lift your name up high, the name of Jesus. You be honored and you be glorified. Amen. Let's worship.